Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SASCAs to Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Sorette. I am an Associate Vice President at James Madison University. And my name is Kate Radford. I serve as the Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So um, you're finding us here at the beginning of season three of To Practice. Thanks for joining us or sticking with us if you've been listening from the beginning. Um, we are jumping into a, a new topic today, which um, we'll get to in just a second. But just to catch you up in case you've missed our previous seasons of To Practice, um, Miles and I used to work together here at Clemson. Our office was about half graduate students. And through the years, we reflected a lot on the training that we provided to those amazing grad graduate students and came to what is a fairly obvious realization that we were the host for the practical experience for the students. Um, and we felt like we bore a great deal of responsibility for helping them to develop practical skills. So this podcast is really born of that realization. We've spent a lot of time together talking about those practical skills that we think are necessary to thrive in student affairs. Um, and this podcast is meant to share those reflections, to continue to hone our own skills as practitioners, and to give us a chance to sit down and talk, stay in conversation with one another. So again, we're doing that through a grouping of seasons, each based around a specific practical skill. And without further ado, this season, we will be talking about hiring. We will be talking about hiring, which I'm confident is something that people are not trained for in their graduate experience, because I think people think of it as a couple of steps away. Um, and so we're excited to talk about that in a very different kind of hiring landscape. But before we get to that, I'm excited for the next installment of our sort of get to know you activity here, which is pop culture, true or false. So what I'm going to do is I've come up with a theme uh, for today. And uh, what I'm going to do is ask Kate uh, some questions and she's going to tell me whether that is true or false. So the theme today is houses in Game of Thrones. Kate, are you ready to tell me if these are real families in Game of Thrones or things that I've made up? Oh, gosh. You know, every time we do this, it's like this anticipation of what is going to be the topic that you are going to select. And every time I say this, I could not predict in order to prepare. So um, I'm ready. But no, I have no idea. I've never seen a single episode of. OK, that's a lie. You know this story. I will briefly tell it to our listeners. I, I saw about 15 seconds of one episode of Game of Thrones when my spouse and I visited Ireland. Um, we went into a portion of Northern Ireland where I think part of Game of Thrones was filmed. And so we were not on the Game of Thrones tour, but we were sharing a bus with people that were on the Game of Thrones tour. And they did um, take us into a cave and said, this is where this scene was shot and showed us one scene. And from what I understand, it was probably not the scene I should have seen as my first exposure and only exposure to Game of Thrones. But that is my uh, the extent of my knowledge. So to answer your question, no, I'm not ready. But here we go. As that is not a, this is not a family as to practice is a family friendly show, but uh, Game of Thrones is not a family friendly show. I'm not going to ask a lot of detailed um, follow ups, but um, there's at least one very racy cave scene that I can think of. So, um, yeah, I can. Yeah, it was I can, a lot for me to see. Well, this time we're not talking about plot details. We're just talking about families. So, oh. Kate, is the Tarly family a real family? So. 
hypothetically, this family is um, a part of the, oh gosh, what is it called? I should have prepared some more details about these true or, or false uh, families. Anyway, we'll just go with Tari. I, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I appreciate you trying to give me context. It's not going to help. And um, so, you know, um, say it again, Tarly. Tarly. Mm-hmm. Tarly. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of like Tartan, like, which makes me think of Scotland and Ireland. Um, so I'm going to say true. Well, Kate, you're off to a running start. Yes, the Tarly family featured in Game of Thrones, a terrible man named Randall, and then his uh, very sweet bookish son, Sam, uh, who's a real hero of the show. Um, yeah, so there you go. Tarly family, that's a real one. I'll be honest, if you had given me the names Randall and Sam, I would have said false. That does not sound like something in Game of Thrones, but keep going. Yeah, Just, you know, they're like, you know, you know they're like spelled interestingly. I think Randall might have a Y in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. How about how about Farley? Farley, a real family? Farley. I just I feel like I give too much context of where my brain is, but here it is. Um, I grew up with twin sisters who um I'm relating everything back to Ireland and Scotland, even though that's not, I know the whole purpose of the show, but because that's where I was exposed to it, there's my brain. Um, I grew up with sisters that were they did Irish step dancing that's a story for another day they were incredible they would perform at like every school function we had and they were awesome um and their last name was Farley so I'm gonna say true to that one too that one is false um I just like I just liked it because it rhymed with Tarly um I should have gotten that one yeah pretty pretty elegant okay how about Targaryen is that real Targaryen Targaryen feels very long um boss that's not real uh, <laughs> i think people listening are gonna like that answer the most the targaryen family is the show house of the dragon that just came out the that house of the dragon is the targaryen mm-hmm. family it's like the main family in the history of game of Thrones. oh it's like a central okay yeah. yeah 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 i thought i that was the one that i thought would be pretty easy um i'd like to apologize to game of Thrones fans for my lack of knowledge but keep going you remember when we used to sit around the lunch table and you'd have to listen to us talk about this anytime yes. anybody talked about the woman who had like a million names daenerys uh breaker of chains uh a lot of a lot of different things mm-hmm. she's targaryen she's a target okay yeah yeah well now um, i know it's all right here's my last one janarian this feels like another rhyming situation. That's false. Well, that's, yeah. I, I didn't really think of it as rhyming, but I thought of it more as like generic or general, you know? Oh. That's what I was sort of going uh, for. I there. guess it doesn't sound exact rhyme, but it feel, felt rhymey to me. So I'm, yeah. Is it is it false? Yeah, it's false. Yes. Two or four. That's good, Kate. Man, 50-50. You know, I do have a 50-50 chance every time, which... Uh, I think you pointed out last season is if I just guessed true to everything, I would do about the same, but it's all right. Um, I've got a little plot twist here for you. So Miles is not prepared for this listeners, but we had a, a request from a listener um, who said that they think that I should turn this around on Miles Surrett and ask him a question every week about pop culture. <laughs> um, but they did say that I need to make it very specific to my skill set. So what you should know about my knowledge of pop culture, we've already discussed. I have a weird knowledge of the Kardashians. 
Um, and then my other real knowledge area is in early 2000s punk, punk rock music um, and not really even punk rock. It's more like emo, like fake, like pop punk. Um, but it is definitely my music of choice, even now in my uh, mid 30s. So um, I'm going to give you a name of a song, Miles, and I need you to tell me if you think this was a real early 2000s pop punk rock song. Are you ready? Yes, I am. What a what a fun twist. I did yeah. not know this was happening. Wow. Here we are. Okay. All right. I am. I'm ready. Okay. So the song and this is the full name of the song is Jude Law and a Semester Abroad. Is that true or false? Is that a real song? Well, um, I I want to circle back to a point that you just made. It is generous of you. And I would say in keeping with the content, I won't say it's good content, but better content that you don't just guess true every time. That would really take some air out of the balloon of the game. And mm. I do like how you externally process your answer. I think that's good for this, for this audio uh, medium. Um, mm -hmm. So my feeling is, so there's two ways that this could go, I think. That is a oddly specific name. So there are two things that could be true about that. It is either that is true because it's oddly specific or it is a slight derivative of something that actually is true. Mm -hmm. So if it's not Jude Law and a semester abroad, it's something like Matthew McConaughey and my week in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. um, but with that in mind, I think I'm going to say that that is uh, I think it's false because I think you're trying to trick me. Hmm. Well, you are incorrect. It um it is true. Mm. Um, the song is called Jude Law and a semester abroad. It is by the band Brand New, which is one of my personal favorites from the early 2000s. Um, you may know their more popular friends, Taking Back Sunday. There's a story there that I think I have I have gone into a deep dive with you on a one commute to Clemson about their stories, their songs back and forth to one another. Um, but it is a real song. Um, and the chorus um is written to it's you know written to a woman who's studying abroad it she's it says to uh tell all the english boys you meet about the american boy back in the states the american boy you used to date so yeah he's not happy with her studying abroad that's i think the core message in the lyrics there but yeah um that's a real song so i'm really looking forward to adding this component for this season um listeners if you have suggestions of songs and you're also an early 2000s um pop punk fan please send them my way i think that the specificity of how ridiculous these songs are is going to make for really good content as we're processing this in real time i do want to point out that you had to go like the fact that you were considering early 2000s pop punk as your strength <laughs> area in pop culture i think is saying something about yeah the sort of nature of this activity generally so it does say a lot it does say a lot um <clears throat> i'm not sure i would call that pop culture person okay. all right that's fair that's fair i will say i do think my pop culture knowledge just in around music generally speaking is stronger but i have a real real expertise in that early 2000s period so anyway so just to do some real-time updating here, um, Brand New has over a million monthly listeners still. So, you know, there's yeah. there's definitely, you know, Kate, you are not alone here. 
Wow, it's looking back Sunday, over two and a half month million monthly listeners. So I'm telling you, people activating a hive here, really, it seems. I like. know. I'm kind of hoping this does activate a little hive. If if you are in this hive in Saxa, please, please let me know. I'd like friends are in, in this area. Thank you. Yeah, Kate, let's just get on. You should go on Reddit, which I know you know how to use, and then just get on some of the subreddits and just start posting this. I think people are going to, it's really going to grow our audience base for exactly who we hope will. Um, so anyway, uh, previously we worked on, uh, our first season was on supervision and our second one was on institutional politics. This time we're shifting our focus to one of the most uh, vexing student affairs problems right now, which is hiring. So um, we've got this lined up hopefully from a timing standpoint, to help folks going into the the main spring hiring season. So with that in mind, Kate, tell me about the current landscape of hiring and student affairs. Ooh. Well, I think I'm vexing is a good word. Uh, I think that we are, I don't know anyone right now in student affairs who is not struggling a little bit with hiring and who is not talking about hiring. I feel like it has come up in a lot of conversations that I have been a part of. Um, I think for me, I sort of thought about this from, I'm seeing it from many angles, right? So I personally hired several folks over, um, the spring and summer. Um, I think honestly, so, so to be transparent, we said we're producing or we're releasing this, um, in the spring, early spring, probably, uh, December, January, I don't know, somewhere in there. I forget what you just said. We would release it timeline wise exactly, but that it would be prior to the hiring season. We are recording this in November. Um, I think even thinking about what it looks like in November versus what it looked like in May, June, when I was doing some hiring is different. Um, but I think the landscape generally um, is that the folks are, are finding or there is a belief um, out that there is a limited pool or that our hiring has become much more challenging um, in the recent months, um, I'm seeing that from, so again, my own hiring processes, uh, over spring and summer, I'm seeing that right now from several colleagues who are attempting to hire, who are reporting that they feel like they have, um, maybe some smaller pools than they are used to certainly smaller pools than they're used to. Um, and I think pools where they are finding folks, maybe with some less direct experience, or maybe, they're not just the people that we are used to seeing in polls. We're not this very direct experience of I went from undergrad to grad school. I had an assistantship in this specific area, and now I want to join that, you know, work in that functional area specifically, right? It's a little bit more of the transferable skills we're seeing, more of the um, tangential experiences maybe that aren't exactly directly in line or what we're used to seeing when we open up search processes. Um, I'm also seeing this from the angle of, some recent grads, right? So I know several of, I just, I think the job search process, the hiring process of our, even just looking at my own sort of microcosm of this here at Clemson, looking at the grads that left in May, um, many of them still holding out for roles, holding out for specific jobs that they know are going to come open um, or holding out for a very specific functional area. Um and probably more than that is finding folks who are, you know, so not so many, I don't want to exaggerate, but many of our grads leaving, coming straight out of a grad program and leaving higher education, not even, you know, we are, I think we've seen that 
um, that happen with more seasoned professionals or even like entry-level professionals who have worked a few years and then have sort of moved into something that might be adjacent to higher education, like training and development or um, ed tech or something like that. But um, this was the first time I think that in this past spring semester where I have seen people going directly from higher ed programs in, out of the field. Um, so I think I'm, I'm seeing it from that angle of like that, our, what our recent grads are doing and how that impacts the hiring process or impacts then the pools that we have as folks who are hiring. Um, and then I think the third place I'm sort of seeing this from is I serve on several either um, cross campus like committees or groups, coalition, task force, whatever you, you wish to call that. Um, and also cross institution, like, um, you know, I belong, work with a group of folks who serve at various institutions in the ACC or, um, who are leadership educators on other campuses, things like that. And every one of those places I'm hearing people talk about feeling stretched thin, feeling like, you know, I've, I've heard in a multitude of those meetings of like, we didn't, weren't able to do that this semester. We weren't able to get to that this year because we have some vacancies. We have multiple vacancies. Um, I just, I feel like I'm rarely in a space where I am interacting with another department or campus where they're like, yeah, we're fully staffed and, and operating as normal. There feels like there is a lot of, um, a lot of vacancies right now. So I think for sort of how that impacts the current landscape of hiring, I mean, I think it's just, from what I am feeling from all those places is that it feels like it is um, harder than it's been before. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Um, I think like it means that folks are having to work differently. And I think that's what we're going to talk about here a little bit today and throughout the season. Um, but I think it's taking more work to recruit people. I think it's looking for the less obvious candidates um, and I think to be honest, we are, um, we're seeing more failed searches. I've seen several failed searches where previously in my career, I did not see that. Um, I think it's, it's meaning we're, you know, we're maybe having to extend the process a little bit more and, and again, think differently about it. So yeah, I, I think it's vexing back to your original comment, Miles. I think it is, I think it is something a lot of people are struggling with right now. Shout out to my colleague, Steve Grandy, who, uh, loves the word vexing and I'm, uh, co-opting his use of vexing here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is no doubt that the, that what is happening right now is different. There's, in my mind, there's no doubt. And it's a complete, I think it feels like whiplash for folks because it's a complete 180 from, you know, those those poor grad students who uh, finished at the end, you know, they were in their second semester when the pandemic hit and then everything shut down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it just, it's, it feels shockingly different from then. I think what I'll say, and I know we're going to get into this more, is that there's no guarantee that it's going to stay this way. Or is there a middle ground between how things were before and how things are now? Um, and is that, you know, is that potentially where we'll end up? I just, we operate as if, you know, like a year is you know like a trend is a foregone conclusion mm -hmm. and there's just you know like there are indicators right now so I, I would say the biggest sort of threat in terms of this hiring pipeline that you're talking about was COVID in the way that you know like I just don't think I think it's a pretty clear indication about some challenges related to distance work and uh, distance you know in a distance like educational experience um, I think for you know 
six months to a year to an extended period of time, um, we were not engaging with students in the kind of way that would make them want to go into the field. So, I mean, that was, that was the thing that was happening, but then also, you know, the way that work operated during that time, I don't know if it, it provided, you know, we're, we've got a lot of folks in this mix who have had affected undergraduate experiences or affected graduate experiences. So, I mean, all that is new and we just don't know long-term how that's going to play out. The other thing that I, that feels different to me, and I think you're right Kate, is the sort of creep of the ed tech space into student affairs. Most people that I know are going to ed tech or doing this hiring route directly there. And I just don't know for sure, again, that that is a sustained industry. Now, I'm not the expert on that. And I'm sure there are folks that are listening who will feel who will feel differently around that. Um, but I just, again, don't have enough information to know for sure that that corporate structure is something that's going to continue to hire at the kind of rate that um, that happened, you know, in the last couple of years. So I think, you know, there's there's just not enough information to know for sure whether it's going to stay that way. Um, and so I think we'll get into it, but I, I think it would kind of behoove everyone to operate in the environment that we're in, but not, and, and to make, you know, make do with, with the environment that we're in the best that we can. Yeah. You know, it makes me wonder sort of what will the like rebound look like maybe back into higher education, right? So folks that have left or folks who maybe went immediately into something um, that is higher ed adjacent, um, you know, I have a very small sample size <laughs> to make this assertion on, but I've, you know, I've talked to several grads pretty recently who have made that jump, who've made that switch. Um, and to this point, and again, my sample size is small. And so I'm sure there are people listening to this who will say, I'm glad I made that jump and I love it. But I have, I've talked to a number of people that are not happy with that move that have found that, you know, yeah, maybe the skill set was similar and they feel like the work is comparable um, in terms of what they are able to bring to it. And it felt like a good fit from that perspective, but the the outcome for them, their personal satisfaction and fulfillment, like in that has not been at the same level as what they found working um, in more traditional student affairs roles. And so I know, I know, I know a couple of folks who are trying to make their way back into higher education. I wonder if that is like the beginning of a, of a rebound we'll see of, of a larger group of folks trying to make their way back in and sort of how that will impact hiring overall too. There are folks coming back. That, that is a real thing. Um, and I think some of our work is to keep that door open and to not stigmatize the idea that because someone's left, you know, that there's yeah. this, you know, to me, that is a very permeable membrane. Yes. And I don't, we do not have to present this as someone is a student affairs professional or they are not a student affairs professional. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this functions in a lot of different spaces, but yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that some, you know, higher education and the corporate world are different. The skill sets may be the same, you know, but if you're taking an ed tech job where your job is primarily based on um, hitting graduate graduate school enrollment goals and you're getting paid by, you know, a grad school across the country that doesn't know you to increase their graduate school enrollment. And that's ultimately how you're getting paid is by more grad students enrolling. What happens if that doesn't work? Yep. You know, if there is a there is a promise built into that. And if it doesn't work, there's a different kind of, you know, there's a different kind of expectation on the corporate world about what expectations look like and about what um, termination looks like. And I think those things can be very, very unmooring. You and I have talked before, too, about 
how I think there is latent meaning in this work that people, you know, that people um, lose track of. But yeah, I mean, but there are, you know, structural things. And this is not to say, again, the only point that I'm making is we just don't know for sure. There's a lot that has been different over the last couple of years. And to say that this is a forever change, it's definitely different right now. There's no doubt about that. And I just think that we need to operate in the environment that we're in and do the best in the environment that we're in, but not assume and make a leap that we're sure that it that it's going to be this way. So. Yeah, I really appreciate your comment about it being um, our job not to stigmatize that and to and to keep the door open because I think you're exactly right. Um, and I I do feel like there there may be some stigma attached to that. Um, of like leaving and coming back. And I think we need to actively work against that. I think we've been, we haven't stigmatized people leaving to go work in nonprofit work or, you know, I think there's other things that we for many years have considered sort of adjacent um, and people have flowed between the two. Um, and I, I think you're right. We're keeping that, that door open is really important. So thanks for that note. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, there is good research from before the pandemic that would tell you that there are struggles with a fully remote work environment. And that's not just, you know, that's not just like emotional. That's not, uh, you know, related to mental health. Um, there are challenges to being a fully remote worker that come into like what advancement will look like and how, what those connections are. And there's good, you know, there's good research on that. That's from before the pandemic. Now that definitely could have changed again. Um, but I think, you know, I have a, a, a colleague here who, um, was working in ed tech, came back and, um, just felt like they were totally anonymous in their work. You know, they were not, you know, they were geographically separate from the people that they were working with and they felt like they were put in a box. And when I sort of heard that language explained, I was like, that is exactly mm -hmm. what the research would tell you in terms of how this works. And so some folks may desire that. And there's very clear indications that folks do want hybrid, uh, hybrid work options, but that's different than, you know, what, you know, a fully rural. Uh, fully remote space can look like. And that's a lot of what folks are leaving for. I'd say the vast majority of people are leaving for uh, fully remote options because that's the easiest, in many ways, easiest transition. And it's the least disruptive to your life in many ways. You don't have to, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to move. I think it's the feature and the bug. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Miles, you, um, you did your dissertation research essentially around this topic, right? You looked at um, morale. And so how do you think that the current state of hiring reflects morale and student affairs? Maybe for folks who don't know, tell a little bit about your research and, and sort of how you're seeing some, some correlation here. Yeah. So I did my, so I did my research looking at morale and student affairs broadly. Like that's what I was, that's what I was studying. And it was specifically around, the myth of departure from the field, how often people leave and at what rate and during what timeline. Um, but it was really like what I was really interested in was how morale exists within the field. And what I will say is that like this kind of what I would call catastrophizing, like this assumption that everything is going to be this way, spinning it out. Like, is this the future of the field? Are we ever going to be able to fill these jobs? You know, um, that sort of referendum is something that we do in a lot of spaces. And, um, and I think that that is a very natural thing to do. Um, and it's all actually why I wanted to bring this up because there is very, very strong psychological evidence to show that contagion of negative emotionality spreads like wildfire. 
Um, it is very, very easy. And I think this is, I don't know specifically like from a, you know, from a neuro neurological standpoint, why this works, but I think it's some sort of like evolutionary threat response kind of stuff. Like you are more prone to accept bad news because it helps you survive. Um, and so I say all this because negative emotionality spreads in student affairs. So this narrative that we can't hire anybody and that the field is in jeopardy because of that is something that people are going to latch onto because it's a very natural thing to latch, latch onto that. And what I found in my research that I think is really worth sharing and for folks to know and to understand is that when you share negative emotions about your work with your peers, it sometimes transfers to those folks. And that, that emotional contagion is something that at least my research, and again, you know, not to be positivist about things, but my research would indicate there's, there's some data to show that that is a real thing. And that's been demonstrated in other studies as well. So my theory in this moment is that turning getting less applicants for jobs into something bigger than that is actually deepening that reality. This projection, so when we go and talk to graduate students, there's a temptation to be like, this is the best time ever to go get a job in student affairs. And I've said that to graduate students, and I hope that they'll hear that and feel encouraged. But there is a world in which they'll hear that and be like, well, why is that? Should I be seeking work elsewhere? But it's particularly if it's, you know, pitched in a different way and it's, you know, we're not able to hire anybody, you know, it creates this feeling of decline related to the work that we're projecting out there that I I have some evidence that would say actually makes that problem worse. Um, and so if you want more applicants, lamenting the fact that you don't have enough applicants is not the way to improve the situation. So what I will say is let's get to work. Let's make the pipeline more attractive. How can we improve the graduate student experience? How can we make our offers more attractive? How can we make st staying in positions more desirable? How can we make positions more sustainable for people in their lives? How can we destigmatize the idea that student facing jobs are not something that people should want to do long term? Um, how can we how can we fix that? And everybody I know, I know that the thing that we have not talked about yet, that is this like, you know, fire alarm going off in anybody who's listening to this head is that, well, it's money, it's money, it's money. We can't do anything about that. And um, what I would say, and I also, there's a lot of research on this that would show that money is not the primary reason why people leave. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about their relationship with their supervisor. It's about how they feel accepted and cared about in their space. Um, so there are ideas that we can put into place. Now, it's not to say that money isn't part of the situation. And I recognize and understand the position that I have, the background that I have in saying that. And I want everybody to seek their own value and what's going to be best for them. So if leaving for more money is what folks need to do, then please go and do that. But we here in Student Affairs can make these this whole pipeline better if we can be creative if we can be disruptive, if we can flip every rock upside down and think about how to do this differently. So um, I just want to say, like, if you want to make this better, then let's work to make it better um, and sitting around and talking to folks about it. And I think what I will add is that I think that this negative emotionality piece is true of like so many parts of life. This is not just a student affairs thing. When Kate and I worked together, I made her make this promise to me, like, two years ago, I think this was before I even knew about any of this research, which was our relationship has to be more about being frustrated about work. And we had many, many positive things that were happening at work. It wasn't, it wasn't that, 
But there's this temptation, and it's, again, very natural to run to the people that you care about and be like, let me tell you about this bad thing. And uh, there's this great, great line from this book called The Great Believers, which is trauma is not the best glue. And what I would just say is that, like, you rarely call up somebody who you haven't talked to in a little while and been like, remember that terrible time? Right. I mean, I keep I keep in contact with a lot of colleagues. And what we're talking about is their lives now, how they're doing, you know, reflecting on warm memories and things that we care about. And so it's just not it's not productive for the work, but it's also not productive for us as people to center our relationships around this kind of negativity. So anyway. If we want it to get better, then let's work on making it better. And that's what we're going to be talking about all season. So, Miles, I love that. I, um, I'm just sitting here reflecting even on my, my response to your first question about sort of like, what is the landscape and, and reflecting on, I, I said that there's been so many spaces I've been in where honestly, the conversation has centered on like, we're short staff. We don't have enough people hiring's hard, right? Like it, it has been absolutely center stage in so many spaces that I've been in. Um, and I think, you know, your research would indicate this and what you just noted would indicate this, but like it puts us into a cycle of, oh, everyone's dealing with this problem. It's not a me problem. It's not our fault. There's a, there's just a hiring issue. Therefore, I don't need to do anything about it. Right. Like, well, it's not, you know, it, it, it takes the onus off of us to, to work differently and to think differently and to make changes that make us more appealing and make us, you know, better able to hire good candidates. Um, I mean, I, I've heard my, I can like think of my own experience of being in spaces where it's, it's like been kind of a, I guess a bit of a, a relief, which I think it's okay to feel a little relief of like, okay, it's not just us. But like, if you lean too far into that relief of it's not just us and it's like, well, it's everywhere and, and doing the, okay, there's nothing I can do about it. Cause it's, it's this huge permeating issue that, um, no one is getting, um, ahead of, then it does really cause us, I think, to, to step back into just throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can do when I think to your point there is a lot we can do and I'm really excited for us to to kind of process out loud about what those things are this season so me too let's do it let's do it all right Miles so how can we choose to think about hiring if we think about this differently if we know that this is all out there how can we actively choose to think about hiring all right. Well, I'm going to put a hot tape alert out. I think this is going to be pretty spicy, but um, the field was saturated to begin with. It just was. There were too many people in student affairs. There were a lot of good people who couldn't stay in the work or didn't feel like they could stay in the work or they had to apply for 40 jobs to find one and that would get pushed out by bottlenecks. And there's a separate question there about how we create student facing jobs and how we destigmatize the concept of entry level and we can, you know, we we can discuss that if you'd like. But what I'm saying and what I feel confident in saying is that the field was saturated to begin with and that we were spoiled. We just roll out the post on higher ed jobs and here would come 70 applications. Yep. That's how it would work. And people in a lot of other sectors have been hustling for a long time to find people. Um, and and frankly, I knew this, and Kate, I know you've heard me say this out loud. I was always terrified when we would do what was called the paper cut, when we would cut from, you know, I mean, there were times at Clemson where we had 100 people apply for jobs. Yep. And we'd cut from 100 to, 
I would always fight to do like 15 phone interviews mm-hmm. and it was, you know, phone interviews then um, because I knew that like in that 85, there were probably 12 to 15 people who could have done the job really well and they were just gone and I wouldn't know anything about them. And, um, and so my point here is that like we were making mistakes beforehand and it wasn't actually beneficial to the field to have people scrapping and crawling all over each other to try to get jobs. Um, it was very common. And the advice that I would give to grad students is be prepared to apply for 30 jobs. Yep. And um, our processes and jobs have been about what the institution needs. We have centered it that way. We've had this very dispassionate approach to the way that hiring works. And we need to move towards an experience that is pro-candidate from recruitment to onboarding. And that's what this season is about. And I mean, we're going to get into that in in great detail. What does that actually mean? How do we build a pro-candidate experience? How do we make it as attractive as possible for people to come to our campuses and to stay at our campuses? Um, And we're, you know, we're going to work through that. But I don't know that this, even if it stays this way, I don't know that this is actually a bad thing because if good people are staying in and of course, good people are leaving, but there are good people that were leaving before because they were frustrated about the saturation process. I'm not alone. And I've been through a really rough job search and I'm not alone in that experience in terms of this feeling of just floating forever and ever and ever trying to find a job. Um, And that is discouraging to people in a different way. Um, And it is okay if there's inherent disenchantment that exists, it's okay for people to seek other things out, but I don't want the disenchantment to be because people feel like they can't find a job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's how it was before. So I think that that's a way to think about it is like, this is an opportunity for us. Um, And I'm excited about I'm excited about taking on taking on that challenge. And I think that there's a world in which we fix some problems in our field by doing this, by making these jobs better. And I think that we can do those things. I, I don't know that I um, can express my level of sort of excitement. I said this already, but about this this season and I think what I hope will um, will be you know, us processing through what a shift in our field looks like. I think you, everything you've just said is a hundred percent accurate. I think our, um, we have been spoiled and I think we have not, we have not had to work hard to find candidates. And now we're being asked to, to work a little bit, to find folks and to create experiences and to, and not just create experiences in the hiring process, right? And what we might consider as the traditional hiring process, like, okay, how we're interviewing, how we're selecting, those kinds of things. Um, We're talking about like much bigger um, sort of systems overall, right? Like root issues here versus um, just the symptoms of this that we're seeing. So I'm excited for us to think about big and small, what that could look like. Um, I think the reality is that we have got to think about how we can do things differently, right? Adapt or die. Like we're not going to get good candidates. We are not going to continue the good work that we do on our campuses if we don't have those people to help support the work that we need and people that are passionate about the work, people that have the skill sets that we need um, and who hopefully we can retain in our field. So I'm personally very excited. Thank you for all of your your wonderful thoughts on that. Um, Want to wrap up as we do each episode with a resource to share here. Um, mine, I think is directly related to some of what you talked about miles. And we did not talk about this in advance, but, 
Um, I want to share an article that I um, actually found on NPR. It, it's it's part of a Planet Money series, but um, the article is called The Great Resignation, more like The Great Re- Renegotiation. And it speaks exactly to what you're talking about, Miles, that we have, um, we've sort of blamed this bizarre, the, the quote that I, that I, that really stuck out to me is, um, talks about us living in this bizarre pandemic economy, right? With all these strange trends that are happening. Um, and the article basically says like, but this isn't one of them. The fact that people, that we are, um, seeing people leave their jobs, that we're seeing people um, look to greener pastures is not about post-pandemic. Like this, it's not that trend. This is just about the fact that there are, there's a strong job market. There are lots of opportunities available um, and that people are going to um, look for those things and that we have to be able to meet those needs. We have to align with those things. Uh, the the bargaining power, they say in the article, has has shifted in the favor of the person searching for the job versus, um, to your point earlier, the institution. And so I think there's some good information in there that, um, again, not higher ed focused, but uh, I think speaks to a lot of what we're talking about here in a different way to maybe think about that and look at that. Mm. What do you got, Miles? Yeah, Planet Money stuff is so good. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. Um, so mine is from a article that I actually read that was really influential in how I thought about my about my d- dissertation or research, which was by Jill Lepore in The New Yorker. It's titled Burnout, Modern Affliction, or Human Condition. It's available on their website. And um, Kate knows this because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Some of it is from reading this article and understanding the nature of, of burnout. Um, and so she has this quote that I think about a lot particularly when people use that phrase, and I'll just read it. Um, To question burnout isn't to deny the scale of suffering or the many ravages of the pandemic. Despair, bitterness, fatigue, boredom, loneliness, alienation, and grief, especially grief. To question burnout is to wonder what, what meaning so baggy an idea can possibly hold and whether it can really help anyone shoulder hardship. Um, and I, you know, I would really encourage folks to read about the origin of that phrase and how using that phrase when we're probably talking about disenchantment at work in many cases, I think is pretty problematic in terms of the origin of it. Um, but the article I think is really powerful in terms of how, how we think about how we support one another. Um, and again, getting to that trauma is not the best glue kind of idea, um, that when we get ourselves in these fixed mindset kind of places, burned out, not burned out, um, you know, fields in a crisis, fields not in a crisis, you know, there's there's a gray area there. And that's, again, not to deny real trauma and grief that people are experiencing. And I know this is particularly true for how people experience the work from marginalized communities. Um, so, again, I respect how people have experienced their work. I just think there's real meaning to, to that article and to think about um what brings people together in in real genuine lasting meaningful ways what actually creates community so anyway it's a great article so um gonna go find that thank you yeah yeah um hope you'll hope you'll enjoy it um so thanks everybody for joining us for to practice which is presented by saxa you can get more information about saxa the southern association for college student affairs on our various social media outlets including on facebook which is facebook.com backslash saxa fan page on Twitter at Saxa Tweets, on Instagram at Saxagrams, and um, please sign up for the Sax Alert, which is great information and very unobtrusive. Kate, anything that you would want to add? Just thanks everyone for joining us on the ride of another season. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for listening again. See y'all next time.